I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2005. Enjoy. Well, over the last uh, several days, as I've been recuperating from strep throat, I have been enjoying uh, a wonderful new book by Steve Alton. Perhaps, uh, like me, you have read uh, some of his books like Meg, a novel of deep terror. Uh, His most recent book is called The Lock, and uh, that's L-O-C-H. And so you can maybe guess that this book involves Loch Ness and and, uh, involves also the possibility of something living uh, in the waters of Loch Ness. It's a fascinating book which uh, touches on uh, all kinds of ancillary topics and and, and so on. And uh, the book has just recently uh, been uh, released and uh, beautifully constructed. And uh, I'm really excited at the opportunity now to speak with Steve Alton about this and some of the other books which he has written. Steve Alton, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. Uh, One thing that's kind of interesting is, uh, as you write some of these thrillers, you clearly bring a a great interest uh, in science to the table. Tell us a little bit about that kind of interesting mix between your own imagination and uh, and all that you know uh, about science and, and, and how that mix comes together in these wonderful books. Well, as you say, uh, all of my novels really delve into science and, and ground the story in science. So you, you have an action thriller, but, but if the science is real, I think it makes for more terror and more more fun read uh, for a reader. And for that reason, uh, when I was first asked to take on the project of, of writing a novel about the Loch Ness Monster, I, my initial reaction was to turn it down because I didn't feel that I could do it justice because I didn't believe in it myself. I sort of equated the Loch Ness Monster to Bigfoot and the Yeti and, and all these other strange things um, that was more myth than science. But I was urged by my readers, actually, on a reader poll to take a look at it, and so I did. And, and what turned into a month of research led to two years of research uh, where I became fascinated with the science behind the myth. And once I was able to separate the myth from the science, I saw the story. And then just two weeks before I was supposed, supposed to turn the manuscript into my publisher, I was actually contacted by a guy named Bill McDonald, who's a forensics investigator, and I had worked with Bill a few novels back, and, and, and so I trusted his judgment. And Bill had been studying Loch Ness since 1993, and he told me he was absolutely sure he knew what this creature was. And he shared with me his research, and, and it really astounded me. And I agreed with him 100%. And, um, but Bill had a situation. He had to get back to Loch Ness right away. This was in December of this past year because he was being contacted by many of his local contacts who were telling him, there had been a number of rare land sightings this winter, and he needed to get back and, and, and acquire some evidence to support his own theories. And so he made a deal with my publisher, Greg. He said that if we paid for his trip, he would give us the exclusive on his research for the book. Even though it is a fictional thriller, he'd give us his research and anything else he might find. And what he came back with was so startling to me that it actually forced me to hold back the book for two months while I re-edited his information into the manuscript. Hmm. You know, one thing that is intriguing about all of this, it's, it's something which confronts your, your central character, a marine biologist by the name of Zachary Wallace. 
Uh, he is someone who has uh, been investigating the giant squid and then uh, suffers a mishap uh, out at sea, and uh, so his work is, is interrupted. And then he's drawn back to, uh, to Loch Ness, uh, close to where his, his father lives, because of kind of a family emergency. And, uh, and in talking to some folks on a tour boat, uh, someone is sort of confronting him with uh, whether or not he shouldn't try to undertake some careful investigation of his own into whether or not there is, in fact, a Loch Ness monster. And uh, he said, uh, in, in saying no, he said, I'm not interested in risking my reputation as a marine biologist uh, to find out. I mean, the idea there being that a serious scientist, if they undertake a serious study of something like the Loch Ness Monster, is really risking uh, ridicule. And I imagine that that's been uh, a problem for, for, for some time now and has maybe limited just how many serious scientists have seriously looked at this. Well, it has been a problem because there have been so many fake photos and there have been so much fake uh, science and, and uh, even um, myth that has been pushed by the locals themselves, to, which they've used to turn into sort of a, a Disney World. Um, the Loch Ness Monster, if you go to Loch Ness, uh, there are two museums that are dedicated to the Loch Ness Monster, but they are pushing this myth that the creature is actually a, a plesiosaur, which is an ancient marine reptile that's been extinct for 65 million years. Uh, the creature that is in Loch Ness is not a plesiosaur. It's something totally different and is, is not um, this mythological creature that we're led to believe. One of the... Uh things that you you help us understand in in terms of the the history of of Loch Ness is by telling us how far back uh sort of the 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 legend goes but then how there seemed to have been quite a long period uh where there wasn't any talk of a Loch Ness monster really until uh until fairly recently if if I if I read the history correctly give us some sense of that well the first sighting of the Loch Ness creature uh, had, took place in 565 A.D. when St. Columba and his mission uh, went up to the Scottish Highlands and tried to convert the Pict natives there. And, and St. Columba actually witnessed one of these creatures grab a, a swimmer as he was swimming across the bay. And since that time, it, the sightings have increased uh, mostly in the 1930s when the A82 roadway was built and then more people had access to Loch Ness. But between then, between 565 A.D. and, and our modern times, there had been different types of sightings. There had been legends created and uh, wingless dragons, uh, talks of creatures that fit that description, uh, all go back to this, this creature that inhabits Loch Ness. And, it's, and so that your listeners understand, this is not a single creature. This is a species it's not uh, an ancient prehistoric reptile that's been extinct. Uh, this is something altogether different. This is an amphibious fish. Uh, I, I don't want to give away too right. much, but um, it's an amphibious fish that, that used to migrate from the Sargasso Sea uh, into Loch Ness and other freshwater lakes around the world. And, and its migration was cut off in the 1930s when the A82 roadway was dynamited right out of the mountainside. And it, it was that act of, of explosion that um, collapsed the entrance to an underground river or aquifer that actually connected 
Loch Ness to the North Sea. Uh, Loch Ness remains connected to the North Sea through way of the River Ness, but that's a shallow water connection. This was a deep water connection, and what you have to understand about Loch Ness is it's not a, a small lake. This is a 23-mile-long, mile-wide, 800-foot-deep body of water, huge, that was carved out of the mountains from a glacier 10,000 years ago during the last ice age. And, and uh, essentially it's created a giant trowel that runs diagonally across the Scottish Highlands. And um, it's a mysterious body of water. It's, it's very difficult to explore. And any creatures that were in Loch Ness uh, right before that access way was cut off remained there. And that's the creatures we're talking about. Mm. Uh, you mentioned a couple things about Loch Ness itself. Uh, that make it, as you say, difficult to study, one of them being the extreme cold of the water, cold temperature of the water, and the other being that that the water uh, is also uh, not very clear at all. That's two strikes against anyone who wants to to really investigate Loch Ness. Yeah, the water is, is, the clarity is terrible uh, because of the high peat content, which is the... uh, the natural runoff that comes from the streams and that and rivers that feed Loch Ness. So visibility in, in Loch Ness is almost nil. Uh, you can go underwater and, and not see very well as soon as you get about 10 feet down. It makes it, like you said, difficult to uh, take a look at what's down there. Hmm. One of the problems uh, touched on uh, by your central character is uh, that for many people when they imagine something living in these waters, they uh, imagine that most famous photo taken back in 1934, which uh, we know now to be fake, and which, uh, you know, in your estimation, uh, has absolutely nothing to do with what might be actually living in Loch Ness. Yeah, and that's caused problems with getting to the science behind Loch Ness. You have to look past those things, and what you're talking about is related to the plesiosaur theory and this famous surgeon's photo, which is a surface shot of a long-necked animal resembling a breaching plesiosaur. And it was taken by an English gynecologist, R.K. Wilson, back in 1934. The photo's a fake. We know it's a fake. First of all, the photographer claimed that the animal had been several hundred yards offshore when he shot it. But now that we can analyze photos, we understand that the angle of the shot and its ripples and we've done a full analysis on it, and, and we realized that it's only about 30 yards away, which means that this this uh, monster's head, if you will, was actually um, uh, floating on pl- a piece of plywood and was only about three feet tall. Um, the guy who took the photo actually confessed to using a miniature model before he died. But it's those type things that, that create the myth and hide the science and what the real creature's identity is. And, and really, for the first time, this fictional thriller, The Lock, tells us what the creature is uh, in a very non-fictional way. We're speaking with Steve Alton, and we're talking about his most recent book, uh, which is called The Lock. Uh, let's talk for a moment about your, your central figure, marine biologist Zachary Wallace. Uh, you uh, write him as uh, undergoing a, a really uh, absolutely frightening experience uh, which which almost kills him and which leaves him with uh, a, a traumatized mind and uh, and a, and a and an absolute terror for uh, re-entering the water, which of course all but ends his his career. Uh, tell us where some of those ideas came from. 
I, I felt it was important through the, the, the main character's eyes to reveal what this creature was in a scientific way. And so Zachary Wallace is a marine biologist. He is a scientist, but he was also born in Drum the Drocket, which is a small inlet uh, located right on Loch Ness. His father was a Scottish Highlander. His mother was American. And when he was nine years old, he was on Loch Ness, and he had a terrible boating accident where he literally drowned and was revived. And, and his memory of that incident is clouded. He, he doesn't know what exactly happened. He has uh, sort of justified the accident uh, himself. But uh, in order to get to this uh, truth, well, he can't because his mind's blocked from the memories of this. But the story opens up when Zach's an adult on the Sargasso Sea, and as you mentioned earlier, he's uh, on an expedition to find a giant squid, uh, which is um, interesting because we know that giant squids exist, but we've never seen one or, or filmed one uh, alive. And so he's going to be the first to attempt to do that, and he uses a, a special lure that he's developed to lure this uh, giant squid closer to his mini-sub. And while he's down there, he suffers a terrible accident, and he has another near drowning, and he's revived again. But this time, the childhood memories return, and they, and they come to him in, in, in the form of dreams, and, and he realizes that suddenly he's afraid of the water. And in order to resolve this fear, this hydrophobia, he has to go back to Scotland and resolve what happened to him as a child. And, and he doesn't take that call. He doesn't want to go back because he's full of fear about it, but uh, he's forced to go back when his estranged father, Angus, uh, is on trial for murder. And Zach doesn't realize, but when he returns to Scotland, he is being sent on a, on a journey that will lead not only him, but the reader to find out, using science, what exactly this creature is, how it got to Loch Ness, why it's been so difficult to photograph, and for the first time, you know, he's going to battle this creature. And, and uh, I, you know, I, what's interesting to me, what what's fascinating to me is that um, having worked with uh, forensics investigator Bill McDonald and using his theories on what the creature is, we now, in real life, are watching sort of real-life pattern after fiction that, that there have been several incidences at Loch Ness since this book has come out. And we may, for the first time, have DNA evidence of what this creature is that backs McDonald's theories, which are found in the book. Hmm. Something else we learn about uh, in your book is, is not only about Loch Ness, what it is, and uh, what makes it an especially u- unique setting. Uh, we also learn a lot about this fascinating thing called the Sargasso Sea. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, the Sargasso Sea is a body of water that has no land boundaries. It actually uh, floats uh, in the middle of the Atlantic uh, several hundred miles off of uh, the coastline of Miami. And uh, it's a body of water that um, it moves sort of like uh, the eye of a giant hurricane. It slowly moves and uh, years ago, you know, hundreds of years ago, uh, legends about the Sargasso Sea used to speak of giant sea serpents, and uh, Columbus had to cross the Sargasso Sea uh, to get to the United States. And um, it's it's this mysterious body of water where the story opens up. And that's it's it's the kind of thing where we've heard of it and yet don't really know anything about what it actually is. And and I think that's always so fun when you pick up a book and. Uh, 
learn what is behind an intriguing name, for instance. And the Sargasso Sea sort of has its own weather patterns. There's, there's almost no wind there. So when sailors during uh, the early maritime days would, would cross the Sargasso Sea, uh, the wind in their sails would just die. And so this myth of the Sargasso Sea and sea creatures, and, and if, you go, if you venture into this deadly sea that you may not come out alive, it's based on truth because if if you're if there is no wind there and you're stuck in this huge uh, body of water, um, you could literally run out of supplies and die there. Hmm. We also learn, uh, as uh, particularly in this early part of the book, uh, as you first introduce us to this study of the giant squid, we learn about something known as the midwater realm, the largest continuous living space on Earth, and uh, and a space which includes plenty of mystery. Well, the midwater realm is um, a place where light uh, cannot penetrate. It's uh, uh, light in the ocean can only go down about a thousand feet, and after that, you've got the midwater realm, which is this vast area of ocean. And the creatures there have adapted to life without light. Uh, you have uh, phosphorescent creatures. You have uh, creature, creatures with uh, photophores and and other uh, light sensing abilities. And uh, it, really uh, uh, an amazing realm to go down into. Uh, there are three realms, really, the surface waters, the midwater realm, and then the abyss. Um, I, I get into the abyss in some of my other books right. about the Meg series, but uh, the midwater realms uh, are what uh, Zachary Wallace is exploring in, in the opening of the lock. Hmm. On the other hand, the book is also about... Uh, people on land, and in particular, uh, you are really careful to give us uh, plenty of history of Scotland itself. I wonder, uh, and, 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 it, and that history is brought up to us in a, in a couple of different ways through the pages of the book. I, I wonder if you'd explain to our listeners why you thought the history of Scotland was such uh, an important ingredient in, in this work and important to the story you wanted to tell. I think as Americans, we, we have absolutely no idea what the bloody history of Europe is, because we really don't study it in school. We've got a little bit of sense of Scotland's history by seeing movies like uh, Braveheart, and the hero of Braveheart was uh, Sir William Wallace, who was played by Mel Gibson, and in The Lock, uh, Zachary Wallace's claim to fame, or his father's claim to fame, is that they're distant ancestors of Sir William Wallace himself. They share their last name, Wallace being a fairly common Scottish name, but um, their roots trace back to Sir William Wallace. So I thought that when I, when I was going through the science and I spent so many years researching this book, I was fascinated, first of all, how Scotland was formed. Because uh, if you go back hundreds of millions of years, uh, Scotland and England, which are attached at the hip right now, uh, were, not, were not only uh, not attached, but we're nowhere near each other. Uh, England belonged to um, uh, one continent, massive continent, and, and Scotland belonged to another. And as those two land masses broke apart, as the continents began to shift over hundreds of millions of years, I mean, it was literally a million to one shot that these two huge land masses would collide uh, and form what is now known as Britain or the United Kingdom. And uh, Scotland and England are totally different from each other. 
the people are totally different from each other. Their histories are totally different. And for hundreds of years, these two factions have fought a bloody, bloody history. And I, I just felt it made for an interesting backdrop to the story, because as, you, as the book tours through the Scottish Highlands, uh, you're literally touring through ancient battlegrounds, and Loch Ness itself was an ancient battleground. Speaking of battles, uh, we're also talking about the uh, embattled relationship between uh, Zachary Wallace and his father. And you write so uh, so movingly and, and also so vibrantly about, about their complicated and very difficult uh, relationship. Um, how did you manage to do that? Well, all great stories, I think, have uh, character conflict. And here we have a situation where when Zachary was growing up, uh, the one dragon in his life, so to speak, was his father. Uh, his father was uh, crude and uh, cheated on his mother and, and was an alcoholic, um, was a wily Highlander. So there were um, aspects about him that turned Zach off because really they were um, two opposing types of personality. Zachary... Uh, was a, was a, of scientific mind. Uh, he was a boy genius in the making. His father was uneducated, uh, relied more on his wits, uh, his street sense, than anything to get by, and was always shortcutting things, while Zachary was very thorough and uh, believed in investigation. And the two did not get along. And so when Zach's parents divorced and Zach went to live with his mother in America, uh, he lost contact with his father for 17 years, and now they are forced in the story to go back and work with one another, and they need one another now, so it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. Uh, Angus needs Zachary to prove that he's innocent, and Zachary needs Angus to figure out what happened to him as a child and, and resolve that situation. Hmm. So much occurs in this uh, really, really wonderful book. How do you as an author decide how much should be in this story? I mean, how many different strands or levels should should this be? Because, I mean, another way to have written this book would have been to, to write it, in, in a sense, more simply and more straightforwardly. Instead, you've given us a, a book that has all kinds of wonderful texture, but I'm sure writing about all of that is, is, is a real challenge for you as the author. How does one decide about something like that? My job as an author in all of my books has been to create a, a thriller that is a page-turner that's a fast read. Um, you're not going to uh, take a month or two to read this book. You're going to read it in a weekend. And you're going to probably be pissed as hell at me because I'm going to keep you up all night <laughs> turning pages. And that's my job as an author. So, um, you know, I think stories are better when they're layered. I think stories are better when they have uh, characters that are fun. Um, at the heart of a lot of my stories are, are creatures, uh, whether it's a Carcharodon megalodon, a 70-foot great white shark, or, or, or aliens, or, or, or a super sub as in Goliath. But with the lock, it was the ultimate test because here was a, a legend that everyone has heard of. Uh, maybe some people believe in it, maybe some people don't. But my job as an author is to make it not only believable, but ground it in real science. And um, for that reason, I'm probably more excited about The Lock than any of my other six novels because um, there are real things happening in Loctis right now that um, a lot of people haven't heard of, 
but I, I'm sort of on the cusp of the science behind um, uh, some of these things, and, 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 and so I'm working with investigators who are working on these problems right now. And in fact, several months ago, two American college students uh, may have been the first to discover the first DNA evidence of the Loch Ness Monster when they were at Loch Ness on spring break, and um, they were going around the shoreline in a, in a, in a boat uh, from one of the locals, and taking photographs, and, and they came across a dead deer and embedded in the deer's carcass, which was torn apart. The hindquarters were totally missing, uh, as if ravaged by a bear, but there are no bears in the highlands. But, but protruding from its ribcage was the remnants of a, a four-inch barbed shed tooth. And, and uh, this may actually be the first DNA evidence that proves what this creature is. And uh, it was confiscated by the, the Highland authorities, um, but not before these guys took pictures and put it on their website. And um, if you go to their website, LochNessTooth.com, you can see their evidence. And um, so these things are fascinating to me because things are happening right now in the real world that parallel the things that are happening in the book. The book is called The Lock. It's published by Tsunami Books, and its author Steve Alton. Steve Alton, you really have done great work here with this wonderful book, and I uh, am grateful to you for uh, making time in your schedule to talk with me and my listeners about it uh, on today's morning show. I thank you so much and wish you the very best with all your future books. Thank you, Greg. appreciate it. I just want to add that 10 years after the publication of this novel called The Lock, Steve Alton took pen in hand to write a sequel to it. And then several years later, yet another novel forming a trilogy around the theme of the lock.